Hi everyone, uh, welcome to the latest episode of Legends of the Spire and it's a bit of a special one today as we have the, the great Bob Wilson joining us for a chat. Um, Bob never actually played for the Chesterfield first team but did for Chesterfield boys uh, and is one of Chesterfield's favourite sons so it was great to chat to him uh, about growing up in town and watching the great Gordon Banks playing net for Chesterfield as he watched on with admiration from behind the goal. Um, as, as well as being a, uh, having a great football career, Bob Wilson also kind of led the way uh, in both goalkeeping, coaching and in broadcasting. Um, so it was great to talk about, uh, about grandstand and, uh, and World Cups and, um, and coaching as well. Um, and then we went on to talk as well about the Willow Foundation, um, which is what he's primarily involved in now and is really close to his heart. Um, so you can donate to Willow Foundation by going to willowfoundation.org.uk and you'll hear more about the amazing work that they do at the end of the episode. Uh, but we'll start off uh, with this podcast with a clip from a uh, calendar anniversary roadshow that was in Chesterfield in the late 80s uh, in which Bob Wilson featured, uh, which is really good fun. And then we'll go into the chat with the man himself. Um, as always, we're at Spire Legends on Twitter and if you just search Legends of the Spire on Facebook, you can find us on there too. Uh, so I hope you enjoy the episode. Here is Bob Wilson. And welcome back to the Market Square in happy Chesterfield. Happy because it's Chesterfield Smile Week. This huge crowd all smiling at the Calendar Roadshow. Now, Chesterfield, a very famous town, of course, not just famous entirely for its crooked spire, but also, would you believe, famous for footballers. Yes, footballers, and especially goalkeepers. Do you know that Chesterfield has provided no less than eight English goalkeepers in recent years? Most famous, I suppose, is Gordon Banks, but he's not the only famous one. Bob Wilson. Bob Wilson is also a son of Chesterfield. Here's his report on his hometown. I'm surprised how little it's changed. I find it quite amazing that it's... Uh, there is so little, okay, there's a police surveillance camera up there and there are the barriers down here, the dreaded barriers, which uh, I hate. That's changed. Uh, and the floodlights. There were no floodlights the last time I played here. And I think Chesterfield Football Club was one of the last to get floodlights. But overall, the actual, the stands here and the seating and the surrounds of it are virtually identical to the, the ground that I knew when I was a kid and I used to come here and stand behind, particularly that far goal there. I was born just a mile and a half, two miles away from Chesterfield Football Club itself, so that was very handy, but it was on Ashgate Road, and uh, it was a beautiful house, actually. It was the garage doors that became my early Wembley, or Saltigate, or whatever you'd like to call it, Highbury, because against those garage doors, I must have hit a million footballs, and one moment I was Bert Troutman, and the next I was Bert Williams, and I was Ray Middleton, and I was every goalkeeper you could imagine. Now this has changed. I mean the old market hall hasn't changed particularly. And the market stalls are exactly how I remember them because it was always the coloured the coloured tops to them. And the noise is coming out of the same, and the shouts and everything. But um, this is the biggest change I guess on this side with all the all the big stores. Nothing like that in my day. But the, you can see the old cobble streets are the same. And certainly this market area, it's nice to see that it's been retained. But to be honest with you, I mean, I think back now, it's 25 years I've been married to Megs. The 25th, the silver wedding anniversary is coming up. 
and I think back to the cutlery that we still have, and it was bought on one of these stalls over here, wooden handles to them, and this is where it was bought, and they're still there, they're still doing us proud. You taught me my football? I taught you your first football, yes. I know, at Old Hall Primary That's School. right. Yeah, yeah, and Chesterfield boys. And Chesterfield boys, I've and been, cricket. I've been back to the ground this morning, back oh, to Saltygate, yeah. Oh, oh, fancy both. bumping into you, that's yeah, incredible. At the end of it, it's nice to just see that the old historical side of Chesterfield, with a spire there in the background, that's the Chesterfield as I remember it. And uh, you only have to be back here a few minutes. It, I guess it's not changed that much. So thanks for joining us. Uh, this, is, this is a podcast in which we usually interview um, ex-Chesterfield players. And we're kind of making a bit of a special exception in a way, because you only played for Chesterfield boys and never actually played for Chesterfield. But you're obviously a huge name in the town. And obviously goalkeepers from Chesterfield is uh, something in the water or something about, about goalkeepers. But, um, but yeah, I, I wondered to start off with just, just how, your, how your parents ended up in Chesterfield. Because obviously, like you said, they're, they're Scottish and... Yeah, well, my mum and dad, uh, lucky boy. I've had a lucky life right throughout from beginning to where I am now and whatever happens, you know, I've been a lucky boy. But <clears throat> my mum and dad are very Scottish. My dad, um, he was very much into engineering and ultimately became the borough engineer and surveyor of Chesterfield. Mm. And on his way, I mean, he had fought. I, I, I find it difficult to get my head around the fact that my dad fought in the Highland Light Infantry in the First World War lost a lot of friends and pals. Uh, in the end, he was shipped home from France and the Somme because um, he had pleurisy. You know, I mean, I, I can't get my head around that at times. And then in the Second World War, obviously, <clears throat> his two eldest sons, my two eldest brothers, Jock and Billy, were both shot down and killed in the RAF. Um, and I was only four months old when Jock was killed and he was still 19, having flown his Spitfire for a year. And Billy... Um, I wasn't quite two years old when Billy, who was a rear gunner in a Lancaster, was shot down and killed. So, you know, this background, my, my dad really being the engineer from initially being in the Highland Light Infantry, then went to Widnes and he had a little temporary time, I think, in Chesterfield before ultimately he came back and became the borough engineer and surveyor in Chesterfield. And we lived in a, in a you know, I was born into the most beautiful house on 204 Ashgate Road which my dad didn't afford. <laughs> I think it was a dowry from that my mum, from all I gather, but it was this beautiful house. And um, I was born there. It had a, um, a lawn at the back, which was exactly 22 yards distance. So he was a really good cricketer, my dad, and he could bought, you know, so I would go in and I smashed a couple of windows in a little greenhouse at the back. And I mean, he, he, he was a, a natural sportsman himself. Loved his football. Um, Jock and Billy were great sportsmen. I mean, right throughout the family, it went through that. And my brother, Hugh, who is just two and a half years older than myself, I mean, he was a terrific centre-half and ultimately played at Grantham, <clears throat> played, you know, in um, semi-professional football, but a really, really good player. So it, it sort of went right throughout the family that we were natural sportsmen. And I was the one who um, obviously was born without a brain being ultimately the goalkeeper because you've got to be crazy to be a goalie and um, um and what sports were you playing then was it was it cricket football the main ones that you were playing 
Yeah, I mean, cricket was the one that my dad wanted. Was summer was on that back lawn, or we had a little little patch of ground beside it where there was like a little forest almost. And I mean, you got more than twenty-two yards into that, and Hugh and I would bowl. We became. I mean, he he was my mentor. I have to say, Hugh became the mentor because I hated losing. You know, I hated. Although he was two two and a half years older than me, and I, I couldn't accept that I was going to lose. Um, but on the on the um, the back lawn, we played tennis, we played football, we played cricket. Um, and very close to where I lived, within 200 yards, you could get into a lane which took us down to what I remember as Donkey, Rain, donkey Race Course in Chesterfield. And I would go out at 6.30 in the morning running. So I, the one thing that was very lucky for me was that I was, I was the sort of perfect mesomorph. That sounds, if anybody wants, you can be ectomorph, endomorph or mesomorph. I only know that because I went to Loughborough University, <laughs> which, which will come into the story, I'm sure. And so I had the sort of perfect physical build for athletics, for tennis, for football. Um, and I, I guess at one time, you know, because I played in the county tennis championships, I captained the the Derbyshire boys cricket. I, I captained, you know, I played in the Derbyshire boys football. I played for Chesterfield boys. Um, and, and in that respect, what I remember there in the, the English school shield was that we played and got knocked out by Manchester boys. And one of their three goals at Saltergate on that game was scored by a boy called Norbert Stiles, who you know and I know yeah. and everybody knows, became known as Nobby Stiles, the great Nobby Stiles. And he, in fact, were the two who got selected then when I was 15 years of age for the England schoolboys under 15, because at the time you could only play for the country which you were born, I'm sure you'll come to that a bit later on how I got to yeah. play for Scotland. And Nobby and I were the two who not only played together um, for Chesterfield boys, I made my debut against Scotland of all countries. My dad wouldn't go to the game because he was Scottish, but uh, Nobby and I, we won that game 3-0, by the way, which didn't please my dad <laughs> at Hillsborough. And... Um, and it was a fact then that the two boys that they went for, um, Joe Armstrong, the uh, scout, recommended to Samat Busby, Nobby Norbert Styles, and myself. And I only ever wanted to play for Man United at that time. But again, for one reason or another, my dad didn't want me to be a footballer. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, you mentioned like uh, going and, and playing for Chesterfield boys. So I'm just wondering what the setup was like because you just mentioned you did you play your games at Saltergate then yeah yeah if it was English school shield games we were you know well as I remember it now you've got to remember that I am going to be 80 years of age in October which <laughs> hard hard for me to get my head around that it, it honestly is quite difficult so we're talking here around certainly in the, in the uh, Chesterfield boys under 15 and um you know, I was I was 15 years of age or fractionally under 15 because it was under 15. Um, so, it, you know, it would, at that particular time, all I could think about was football. And, and if I wasn't playing football, every time Chesterfield were playing, every time Chesterfield were playing, my dad would have season tickets, which sometimes I would have to go and sit with him in the stand. But if my brother Hugh went or whoever else in the family went, I would go and stand behind the goal because by this time, I quite clearly had a particular hero because he was just extraordinary in the 1956 Cup final. Troutman, Bert, uh, we'll come to Bert Troutman. 
but at Chesterfield, they had this incredible record, which uh, you're going to touch upon, I'm sure, you know, going right back to Sam Hardy. When I was a youngster, Ron Powell was the goalkeeper that I first remember. And then um, particularly when Banksy came from Sheffield, he was born in Sheffield. And I used to stand behind Gordon Banks' goal. So I'm 15 and he's by that time, he's only... He was only two, about three years older than myself, Banksy Gordon, who I obviously played against many times in semi-finals of cups and everything. And I would stand behind his goal and think, this guy's got springs in his heels. In fact, I used to challenge him later on when I had to interview him <laughs> and say, you know, I think you were a bit flash. And he would laugh. And he said, why do you say that? I said, well, your heels used to touch your backside as you ran. He had this amazing, amazing, it's as if he was on a trampoline. And I would go behind his goal. And obviously at that time, in that era, at half time, I could go from the Cobden Road end back round to the Saltergate end. Yeah. And I'd go and stand behind his goal at the other end because I was obsessed by, you know, I had a hero, another hero, but Banksy was obviously, you know, um, somebody who, who uh, when I say, yeah, of course, I admired him, I admired him. To have to come and play against him in the, in the numerous times I did, including an FA Cup semi-final was just beyond all my hopes, dreams or everything else. Yeah. And we became really great friends and, and he still made the greatest save with one of my goalkeepers, David Seaman. Uh, I would almost say that his, his save that he made in a semi-final was nearly as good, nearly. Well, yeah. I have to give it to Banksy because the Pele save yeah. in the World Cup was just extraordinary. So, so in those matches, did you find yourself watching him more than you watched the ball? Yeah. I think that that's a really good, yeah, of course I could. You remember, you know, go remember, okay, I, I had a good physical build. In, in the end, I was six foot one, which at the time I played initially, I was the tallest in the Premier League. You must now really, you honestly, you need to be six foot three with the modern ball and everything. You need to be six foot three going up to Courtois, who was at Chelsea, but now is, is obviously abroad, who's six foot six, six foot seven. The goalkeeper, one of my goalkeepers I coached, David Seaman, was six foot four and a half. Lukey who was born 200 yards from me in Chesterfield. John Lukic, another great pal, one of my goalkeepers at Arsenal. Six foot five, you know, and, and that with the modern ball and the modern game, I promise you, you need to be that height for those that are in the top corner. Um, and so there was Banksy there. And yes, I, I, you know, he, he was, he was the, once he got moved on to Leicester City, I mean, it was like, you can imagine all Chesterfield, I think, went mad. How could you, I guess it was the money, even then it was money, but it was his ability. And he then obviously became the greatest goalkeeper in the history uh, for English goalkeepers in so much that he won the World Cup and he did so much in winning that World Cup. And there was another one, I must chuck this one in because my mum became a JP, Justice of the Peace. My mum became a JP. And sitting on the bench with my mum was one Ray Middleton. And Ray Middleton was before Ron Powell and before Banksy. And he was a terrific goalkeeper, absolutely terrific. And because my mum sat on the same bench as him in the courts uh, on, as a JP, she got to know him well, happened to say, oh, my youngest son's a goalkeeper. And he, he'd, by then he'd moved to Derby and he took me on two or three occasions in his car to Derby in the car, talking goalkeeping all the time, all the time, all the time. On the way back, even if he'd lost the game, he was, he was, you know, he was still talking about 
how I looked upon goalkeeping, what were my strengths, did I think, what were the weaknesses, what needed uh, improving. So, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, I'm the one sad thing I have about Chesterfield football, Chesterfield, is that, you know, I would have loved to have an attachment to Chesterfield Football Club. And that's never happened, despite everything that happened to me in my career. And even when they moved to the new ground and everything, I was a little disappointed that others were asked and I was the guy who was born a mile and a half from yeah. Saltergate. And um, I would have liked to have had that connection because that's where it all began. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and seeing those fellow goalkeepers and hearing from them and, and kind of being mentored from them, is just, it's just amazing, really. Um, and you touched upon, uh, upon um, height as well with goalkeepers because we had Steve Grizovich on. Um, he obviously started his career at, at, at Chesterfield after, after being in the police force because he was told he was too big to be a goalkeeper. Um, so it's funny, isn't it, how the evolution of, of the game has gone? Um, were, were you ever told that you were too big? goalkeeper because just over no 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 absolutely not i think i think at the time i played with the ball that we played with you know the ball we played with was a heavy really thick leather ball uh and no wonder there is all this problem you know that there has been obviously with the guys heading the ball heading the ball heading the ball um and the modern ball i promise you i've cut through a modern ball and it's not paper thin but it's ridiculous so the whole point of the game certainly with crowds, with, with professional clubs, it bums on seats and you want goals. And the goal, the goal hasn't changed. It's eight yards by eight feet, 192 square, square feet. It's an effing great chasm. Believe you me, it is that and will always be that. But the modern ball, how are we going to make, how are we going to get more goals? You get more goals by having a ball that is, once it's, it's it, I'm not talking about even a Beckham bender, where everybody recognises David Beckham's ability to bend the ball. The modern ball, if you ha have real velocity, bang, and hit it, somewhere on its route, it will go up, down, left, or right. And you as a goalie, you ain't got a clue where it's going to finish up. So whereas in my era, and certainly the goalies who were talked about prior to me at Chesterfield, Banksy, we would, we would pride ourselves on catch, 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 you know, wherever, catch. And with a modern ball, you have a fraction of a second to decide, am I risking catching this or am I going to parry it? Bang, bang, knocking it away. Um, so <laughs> it, it, I'm glad in a way that I played when I played because I would have found it. I, I don't even like the modern gloves that they wear. You know, right up into the time I finished playing, I played in um, with no gloves if the, if the pitch was dry. And I'm just going to reach out of a site here. Hang on. Yeah. I just happened to have them hanging up here. There is one of my goalkeeping gloves. This is a glove I had in the cup final in 1971. So it's like a gardener's glove. <laughs> Holes in the finger. <laughs> they cost about five shillings. They went under the name of Gordon Banks or Peter Bonetti. And they're about five bob, five shillings, which was quite a lot at the time. But this is all we had at that time. And the modern glove is about 200, 250 pounds. Great big, almost like boxer's gloves. And um, I don't think you get the same feel, but that is where I'm making the comparison between catch, catch, catch as we did. And uh, nowadays, parry, parry, parry. Uh, and having that fraction of a second to decide, can I really catch this? Or do I have to just get it out of the way? Yeah. 
And, and you touched upon uh, nearly signing for Manchester United, <laughs> and then kind of not. I did sign. I did sign. I did actually sign. I was on schoolboy forms hmm. at the time. I mean, it was October, so 1957 is when I played with Nobby in the England schoolboys, and we were the two with Joe Armstrong. Um, and there's a guy called Bert Wally, who was one of those who died on the Munich air crash. So this is the time I'm there. And we went in October um, to see a game. And after the game, I was left outside the room. My dad went in. The offer was made. They wanted me to sign the schoolboy forms. And at that time, he was OK about my going over, say, in school holidays times. But nothing more beyond that. Nothing about professional at that stage. But I was only just 15 and a bit or probably close on 16 mm. and on the way home I remember saying to him dad what have you got and he said I've told them no you know football's not a proper job son oh football's not a proper job mm. you know if you get a proper job if you really think you're going to be that good maybe you know but there was a bit of a family history within the police force the metropolitan police was offered to me from my dad as one alternative but because of my sporting prowess if you like in the different sports I went to the All England Athletics as well as well as being you know with the county cricket and everything else um, it was a case of Metropolitan Police or Loughborough University uh, one of well I mean if you're a sportsman you go to Loughborough yeah. it is just you know it's it's I was so fortunate to go to Loughborough and I owe Loughborough so much because and in a way I owe my dad I do wonder would I have been on the scrap heap as a goalie if I'd gone straight to Man United? Or would I have been in the great, some of the great Man United sides? I mean, it's an all, it's an imponderable. But long term, I went to Loughborough, got my degrees, became a, a school teacher, physical education and history. And that allowed me, once I got into the television business, which I know we will touch upon, allowed me to write my own scripts from day one and to convert from being a pundit to a presenter because I was never I never liked being a pundit I preferred obviously presenting the programs so so I wondered what it was like because you were obviously then playing kind of amateur football weren't you at the same time as as being at Loughborough so how how did you juggle both things was it just throw yourself into everything yeah I mean the great thing about Loughborough I mean it was we had an extraordinary in, in my first year there I got into the side straight away, which was which was one thing. I mean, it helped me get to Loughborough that I, I turned up for my interview pre-Loughborough with an England schoolboys badge on me. Yeah. Um, and they made me then juggle the ball for it. says, how many times can you keep the ball in the air? I'm saying I'm a goalie, really. But anyway, um, and we had an extraordinary side in that first year. And we played um, Corinthian casuals who were very famous at the time, Bishop Auckland, who were the amateur side. We knocked them out. And we got through to the quarterfinals against Hitchin Town. And um, I had a trademark head-on diving save, a la Bert Troutman, my hero. And I got three ribs broken. Uh, I had eight, nine ribs broken in my career. But that was the penalty I paid for going head first. And um, so although I stayed on the field, we lost that game heavily. But I think we would have done certainly a lot better. But I mean, to get... As an amateur, you know, a school, we weren't um, semi-pro players or anything. We were just lads who were about to get our degrees, hopefully, and become school teachers. Mm. So, um, I mean, Loughborough, I owe so much to Loughborough. And I'm hoping one of my grandsons is going there in the next 
six months or so if he I think you know if he gets offered a place that's the one he'll choose yeah and you, and you were the first am I right in saying the first non-pro that was that was sold is that right well yeah I mean that was even now I get angry about that because while I was at Loughborough we played a lot of reserve sides like we played Leicester City reserves we played Nottingham Forest reserves and one day we played Wolverhampton Wanderers reserves and on the touchline is the great Stanley Cullis Stanley Cullis this is Wolves when they were you know winning things and you know it's great to see them back where they are mm. and I got an invite to go and I used to hitch lifts to go to Loughborough uh, to go to Wolverhampton to play in the um, third team or a junior side or whatever, sometimes in the reserves. And it was while there that I, you know, they, they did offer me terms. Uh, they knew that I had to teach for one year once I came out of Loughborough, couldn't go straight to be a professional. Uh, otherwise, I would not have been fully qualified. I had to teach for one year. But at that same time, I was in the British Universities team. And um, again, that was a really good side. And the physio for the British University side was a man called Bertie Mee, the physio, who then ultimately went to Billy Wright, who was the manager of Arsenal at the time, and said, we've got this nutter of a goalie. He's, 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 he's likely to get injured a lot, but he's got something about him. And so Bertie recommended me. I went to, I'd been offered the, the terms at Wolves once, you know, if I, once I was fully qualified and everything. And I fell, I walked into Highbury, I walked onto the pitch. It was an extraordinary feeling. I just felt I belonged at that particular club. Um, and I had been, there had been a meeting which had upset me with the Wolves directors and particularly their chairman, who accused me of taking a bung under the counter to go and look at another club. You know, I mean, this is amateur days when, I mean, the, the salaries at the time were 20 pounds a week, you know, in the professional game. So, you know, uh, it, it's mind-boggling really and I, I got really angry with that and my dad was prepared to take them to court because they did challenge it but Arsenal being Arsenal saw the problem that I had I hadn't signed any forms and I was an amateur I hadn't actually signed any forms whatsoever and I wanted my dad to take it to the football league as it was at the time but he said no because he said listen to what happened Arsenal have come in they've asked Wolves okay we'll give you some compensation so they paid the almighty sum of £6,500 for this amateur school teacher, physical education, history teacher. And I think they got quite a good deal in the end. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There was a great quote as well that I saw from you where you, you said about Arsenal, that when you first, when you first saw the, the ground, you, you said, this is not a football pitch, this is a cathedral. Which yeah. is, I suppose, is what a lot of fans feel about the teams that they support anywhere in the country when they first go into that ground and you get that yeah 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 i mean it wasn't just the east end and the west end it was the fact that i walked into the ground i skipped off loughborough borrowed a borrowed my pal's car um i got i was registered to drive it and i walked in and you walked into the old marble hall i mean arsene wenger never wanted to leave that ground ever but as he said, you couldn't compete with 38,000 crowd as his seating, all seating became. And so they had to build the Emirates Stadium. But I walked in and it was the Marble Hall. It was Herbert Chapman facing you. The, the whole dressing room area was marble. It, it, the whole setup was extraordinary. The, the boardrooms, everything about it. And it was like, wow, 
you know, I knew about about Arsenal, obviously, from the days of Herbert Chapman and winning three titles on the bounce, which a lot of people don't remember because it was obviously 1930s. Mm. Um, but I just did fall in love with the place and um, had to make a big decision. And within that decision was the fact that my Chesterfield girlfriend, who I had been boyfriend and girlfriend with from the age of 12 and 11, by the way, mm. and she's still around. <laughs> How she's still around, I don't know, but she deserves a medal. Um, but she, you know, her, her dad had uh, wonderful news agents in the market hall in Chesterfield, Stanley Miles, and we were going to get married. And she was very much into drama. She actually wanted to go on the stage and she gave up the stage. She became a teacher herself. Uh, she was a drama teacher. Um, and at that particular time, one of the biggest pulls was the fact that obviously there was a London theatre world. There were all the opportunities of, for her to continue her acting because she played St. Joan at the Civic Theatre when she was 17. Oh, wow. Yeah. I, Meg, that. <laughs> I call her Megs. I mean, she was Margaret Miles, but she's Megs and always has been Megs to me. Um, and she played St. Joan at the Civic Theatre, got rave reviews. Everybody knew, you know, I mean, it's down to me that she, she, her career came to an abrupt end because we got married and there were three kids within four or five years. And yeah. And, and so, um, you know, this is all tied up. It was a fact that she needed to be in London. And that was the final swing that, that made me. I, it, I had nothing against Wolves whatsoever. I liked Stan Cullis. I liked the guys I was with. There was a lad called Peter Knowles. The goalkeeper at the time was Malcolm Finlayson, very famous Wolves goalie. There was a lot about Wolves, but it was all about getting married, the opportunities. And there was so much about Arsenal that the moment I hit it, it was just like, it was like a magical... But it took a long time to get where I eventually got to. And, and, and you got married in Chesterfield as well, didn't you? We did, yeah. Um, we, we Obviously, I went off down to London for one year. Um, and she taught in London for her probationary year before we got married. Um, and I went down and I had to teach for one year. And I taught um, at a, a school called Rutherford School in Paddington. And very famously, in October, having arrived in the August and joined the training, gone on the pre-season tours, played against Hamburg and Uwe Zähler, a very famous German player. But I was an amateur. Um, and, then, and then Arsenal had a crisis in the early part of the season. By October, they decided the only thing they could do to stop it, they'd lost Jack Kelsey as their goalie, very famous Welsher, brilliant goalkeeper. Uh, who worked at the club still, and they, they threw me in. So the amateur school teacher, I went to referee a game for my, the school I was teaching at in the morning, and I played in the, what was now the, obviously the Premier League, but first division then, in the afternoon against Nottingham Forest. And a, a friend agreed to referee the second half on Wormwood Scrubs. I was refereeing in the morning, <laughs> in the second, in the, in the afternoon, in front of 50,000. I made my debut against Nottingham Forest, the amateur school teacher. It got a lot of publicity, as you can imagine. And we won 4-2. And I had, uh, I'm saying very modestly, a, a very decent game. And then got in the car and drove all the way back to Chesterfield to see my fiance. So, uh, you know, it, 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 this was an extraordinary time. We had to have, 
I had to have the probationary year. And that probationary year cost me any chance of remaining in goal at that time because the players all went to the manager, sadly, and said, uh, in my case, sadly said, look, he's an amateur, we don't see him, we only see him in, in you know, when he's on holiday or end of terms or what have you. And so they bought, they bought somebody and I then went back into the wilderness from 1963 when I arrived until 1966, 67 season. Yeah. Which was a long time. I mean, I get introduced. It's ridiculous, Dave. I get introduced if I'm doing a speech or something. Bob Wilson, yeah, Arsenal legend, if you like. Uh, 310 games for Arsenal. 310 first team games. Yeah. <laughs> Say double it, triple Arsenal, it. <laughs> wearing the badge in the goal. If not the 310 first team in the stiffs, because the reserves are called the stiffs, mm. 536 games in all. And I'm very proud of that. And in the yeah. end, that, that sort of in the end, I, I stuck with it and something happened. And in the 66, 67 season, I played the last 13 games, I think, of the 60 World Cup season. And then we kicked off at Tottenham and I had a blinder on the first day. <clears throat> and within three weeks or three months, um, I was in and was never out except for injury yeah. from then on of Dagenham Essex. I like this one very much indeed. She says, have we noticed uh, the antics of Arsenal goalkeeper Bob Wilson when a corner is given against him? He pulls up his socks, the left one first, then the right. He spits on his hands and he jumps about like a cat on hot bricks every time. Well, we waited until the Leeds game a fortnight ago and Mrs. Phil Pot, you know, you're right. Here leads on the attack and you'll see Lorimer sending a shot, which in fact goes off an Arsenal defender for the corner. Now let's watch Bob Wilson. Remember, left sock first. So it's a corner. There he goes, left sock first. Now the right, Bob. That's it. And now spit on your hands, that's it. Now, just in case you thought that was a once-off, here's a corner from the other direction. And remember what Mrs. Philpott said? It's left sock first when we see him in a moment. There he goes. Right sock second, spitting on his hands. Not exactly uh, dancing around uh, like a cat on hot bricks. But Mrs. Philpott, you're absolutely right, a good spot. And Bob Wilson himself told me that he didn't realise quite that he did that. And... And you, you mentioned a bit about your bravery as a goalkeeper. You've, you're obviously well known, well known for throwing yourself at the ball. Um, how, it was, did you always, did, did you work on kind of overcoming fear in terms of just throwing yourself at things or were you just naturally yeah. just didn't have that? Yeah, you, 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 have, to, you have to judge over, overall. You know, my, my dead ball kicking, I desperately needed to improve my eventually at the very top level coming for crosses up you know it drives me mad the modern goalkeepers don't even cover their six yard box and i would consider anything up to and including the penalty spot 12 yards mm -hmm. should be within my domain and helping out certainly my defenders in the famous double side who were under six foot one was just about six foot peter simpson and frank mcclintock with five foot ten and a half i got so i knew needed to come for that but within from the time I was a kid, I had this ability to hurl myself around without hurting myself. <laughs> uh, although ultimately my injury list is unbelievable. Um, <laughs> but the most naturally instinctive thing was if a guy was coming through on his own, I had this inborn radar that if he momentarily just lost, just slightly played it too far, instead of going sideways, feet first, body as all the goalies do nowadays it was bang 
head first. And that, okay, it, it, was, it was a natural, but I had a hero who did it. I think I did, you know, Bert Troutman, who broke his neck in the 56 Cup final, doing exactly that. A man called John Thompson lost his life playing for Glasgow Rangers, doing exactly that. So, yeah, of course, you ran a huge risk. But my favourite save ever is against George Best when he was through on his own with nil-nil at Highbury in the double year when, they, when Man United are there. And George slightly miscontrolled it and bang. And I mean, I, when we had a This Is Your Life programme later in, in my life, George came on it and said, I don't remember it, but Bob remembers how many were in the crowd, what the weather was like, what the pitch was like, what, you know, how many... And and so and so Bert became my hero, and and uh, ultimately I had the great privilege and pleasure of meeting him. And um, yeah, I mean he was he was very a very very special man with a story which is just you know the fact that he was a German paratrooper uh, and had decided to stay in the country to help our country rebuild was just and became a hero. Yeah, and and he he appeared on your This Is Your Life as well, didn't he? Right at the end. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was really funny because throughout the programme, Michael Aspel, who was presenting it, he mentioned that a couple of occasions he sort of went, and of course you had a hero. And in my mind, standing there, trying to take in that I've got a This Is Your Life programme and it's me they're talking about, twice I thought, oh God, here comes Bert, here comes Bert. And Michael Aspel went the different way. And then I thought the programme was at an end and he said, and he suddenly said, we have one final person to come and meet you. And Bert came on. I hadn't met him previous to this, of course, but he'd flown all the way over from Germany. And he said something really, really generous. Well, I'm looking at my watch now, Bob, but there is time for me to remind you of those early days when you were picked to play for England schoolboys. Your entry in the 1956 programme read, Robert Wilson, goalkeeper, fearless at opponents' feet, idolises and imitates Bert Troutman. That same year, your hero had played in the game of his life in the FA Cup final when he played on after literally breaking his neck. Birmingham counter-attack desperately, but Bert Troutman pounces like a cat. And again... But what's happened? Troutman's down. He's injured. Teammates help Troutman to his feet. He tells the trainer he's all right, but the crowd can see his neck is hurting bad. Over Dave Ewing's head, and Troutman's game as ever. Injured or not, he's determined to pull his weight. And that's time. Manchester supporters go mad with excitement, and no wonder. Many years later, you got to meet your hero. On that occasion, you were stuck for words. But I had something to say, and... I do again tonight. From his home in Frankfurt, Germany, your inspiration, Bert Troutman. Thank you. Thank you. You look well. You look so well. Last words to you, Bert. I always felt flattered about comments Bob made about me. But tonight, it's my turn. I'm impressed, Bob, the player, the presenter, and the person. And I congratulate you and your family for all you have achieved. Thank you, Brad. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bob Wilson, this is your life. Thank you very much. And, um... 
yeah and it, i mean that that was um a very special evening not just because bert was there but that it was a time when the program had been actually not to my knowledge because i never knew i was going to be on it um it had been cancelled twice because our daughter anna had been desperately ill over a five-year period and this was on december 1 1998 and she got she was just fit enough to appear as it were um and um three weeks later she died yeah yeah because you nearly didn't do that program did you uh, i saw that no no i mean i they, they caught they knew that i was gonna when i say they knew i mean i knew nothing about it the only funny thing was as i left home that day and had breakfast and megs usually came and you know would say you know and she suddenly said something really strange on the day and she went she never used to say have a good day and there was sort of something in her voice that i thought that's weird have a good day why is she over the top today um and when i got there we went out to train i had david seaman my goalies with me and and suddenly Michael Aspel and Jill Gando, my lovely workmate at the BBC, were standing in front of me and the red book was there. And I, I, and I, I went into panic because Anna had just recovered from her 15th or 16th life-saving operation. And, um, and I just said, look, I can't do this, guys. I can't do it. And Jill produced a phone very quickly. And the phone, this voice came on, Dad, I'm ready to party. And uh, it was Anna on the phone and Meg's on the phone. Very emotional. Hmm. It's really interesting because, it, again, going back to when we talked to Steve Grizovich, he, uh, uh, he didn't have a goalkeeping coach. Obviously, Arthur Cox was just pinging balls at him on the halfway line while the rest of the squad were doing laps of the pitch. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a thing then, was it? And you were, it's probably one of your biggest achievements in, in many ways in how you revolutionised goalkeeping spe specialism in coaching. Yeah, I'm not sure I revolutionised it. I mean, the, you know, teacher, Loughborough, teacher, coach, coach, teacher, there is no difference. Okay, I was teaching physical education and history as a school teacher, but all that from Loughborough, I, I would look and I can remember seeing the Brazil side coming and the goalie, I saw the goalkeeper and they were training at the Arsenal training ground. And this guy was there doing his best. He wasn't a goalkeeper, but he was doing his best. And I just thought, you know, we don't have it. I used to have to say to Don Howe, our first team coach, Don, can you stay after we'd finished the normal training? I really need some ball handling. And we'd be doing basic catching to the chest, catching away from the body, whatever it might be. And in my mind, I saw this guy and thought, this is crazy. And so I started thinking really hard about doing the exercises that I thought would be really valuable for goalkeepers of that time and that generation. And Don, Don Howe, um, you know, was encouraging me to, to do that as well. But it was Terry Neal, who was the manager of Arsenal at the time, who said, listen, I'm here you're doing the, all of this sort of coaching around the place. Will you come and do goalkeeping coaching? And so... It is a great, I'm very proud of the fact that for 28 years of my life, in which time Arsenal won a lot of, 28 years I was the goalkeeping coach at Arsenal, 28 years of which only the last three or four did Arsene Wenger get me any sort of remuneration for it. Because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were no goalkeeping coaches. Um, and I didn't care, I, you know, I earned a living on the television 20 years at the Beeb and eight years at ITV. Um, not that that was lucrative either, certainly at the BBC, but um, 
I just got into that and very quickly people were catching up. I got asked by Graham Taylor at Watford, went over and helped him. David Pleat, I used to go and help. I didn't tell them that I did a few training sessions at Tottenham. <laughs> I, had keep, I had to keep that really quiet. Uh, Laurie McMenemy wanted me actually to be his assistant manager, but goalkeeping coach as well. Um, yeah, I mean, there were, there were lots of people came on to me at that time. And so it, it's great that the FA eventually recognised that as well and, and gave me <coughs> an honorary award as the first sort of, when I say full-time goalkeeping coach, I used to be up at 20 past four to do my the breakfast news spot on the BBC. I used to then leave the studio at half past eight, get in for half nine, get my goalkeepers, because I used to do that training before they joined the first team squad as a complete squad. And then often get in the car and drive to Manchester or Liverpool to do an interview with Bill Shankly or whoever it might be, and then get back home, go to bed at nine o'clock and repeat it the next day. So, yeah, I mean, it, they were fantastic times. And, um, and I'm very proud now that uh, I also had a goalkeeping school. We, we makes and myself ran the Bob Wilson goalkeeping school for 13 years, and that created other goalkeeping schools. And ultimately, the recognition that you have coaches for um, defending or coaches for attackers or what, what all, fitness coaches are long last. I mean, at Arsenal now, they have two or three goalkeeping coaches. Like you mentioned, you went into um, broadcasting as well um, and you were kind of doing, doing both. Um, and, and you started using, I mean, nowadays, it's just clips of everything all the time, isn't it? And they're able to pull them out in seconds and do stuff back then I suppose it was a little bit differently but that was something you were kind of keen to introduce wasn't it oh yeah I, I it was incredible that uh, I got the the opportunity I had I, I you know I hate the word pundit by the way the co if you want to call it co-commentator or what have you but you see the guys sitting sitting there in the studios <clears throat> whether it be Alan Shearer Wrighty or whoever it might be modern day Gary Neville who was incredible this last week or so about the so-called Super League. Mm. But it was, it was a case that, um, you know, it, 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 it was always, for me, um, the fact that I, they, they knew I could write, they knew that I had a university degree, um, and towards the end of my career, they called me in and they, they used to have a programme called Football Preview, which was presented by, by the head of sport, Sam Leach and they said look well he's he's got more work and we really think you know you we you could start with that and so we renamed it Football Focus which it remains to this day Dan Walker who's about to leave the program actually mm. and so for 20 years for me it was presenting that program and very quickly they got me on to doing Match of the Day Roundup with Jimmy Hill presenting Match of the Days when Jim wasn't there um, presenting and masses of Sunday grandstands because <clears throat> they used to be Sunday grandstands and ultimately giving me the four and a half hours sitting there with no autocue doing grandstand itself and believe you me I mean I'm very proud of the fact that I am the only footballer who, who ever presented grandstand as grandstand the full four and a half version as it were and still to this day and to my dying day will never forget the day when I was in the chair and it was a Hillsborough disaster and that for me will never ever ever because I knew what was going on 
people I was hearing in my ear all the time as I was going. I was going between the Crucible Theatre in Sheffield and the World Snooker Championship, right, we'll go back to the Crucible, where when I'm knowing that there are bodies, dead bodies lying outside the scanner, as they call it, the BBC scanner, and knowing that there were bodies and nothing was able to be said early on because the crowd, the, 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 the two Liverpool supporters and the Nottingham Forest supporters were still, were still in and around the ground and they were really concerned about there being something really bad that would happen. And so um, it wasn't until eight, ten minutes of the end of that program, which became a nightmare because I could hear that I could hear our producer in the scanner talking about the bodies that were outside that scanner. And only to only about 10, 12 minutes, as I remember it, probably a little bit more from the end of the program, around about five o'clock. Did the head of sport come on to me while we were on the snooker and said, Bob, you've got to find some words. This is the, this is the number. And, you know, do you think you can find the right words to say? And, uh, you know, and I said, yeah, of course. Uh, and I came up with, uh, you know, the words saying, if you're concerned about your loved ones, there is a tragedy here. We have heard that six, eight people now seem to have lost their lives. We knew it was more than that. But we didn't want anything to, you know, we weren't allowed to. And Downing Street were in on the whole thing. I mean, it was horrific. Yeah. And we came off the air and we went as a group, as we usually did, to, to have a quick drink after the programme. And on the news it came up, we've heard that 26 people have lost their lives now. That was only 15, 20 minutes after I'd come off air. And ultimately that became 95 immediately. And one year later it became 96. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it, it was the most awful, testing, traumatic sort of um, memory that I ever have, obviously, of working on television. Yeah, it's actually, it's actually one of my earliest memories as well, because we lived in Chesterfield um, by the railway track, uh, just outside of Chesterfield. And, and I remember me and my sister being upstairs in the bedroom and, and the train stopped outside and it was full of Nottingham Forest fans who were on the way there and it stopped right outside the house and we were kind of hanging out of the window and all the forest fans were hanging out of the train windows kind of waving at each other and obviously didn't know them what was going to happen the rest of the day but I still vividly remember vividly remember seeing that that train stopping and all the all the forest fans waving out of the window it was just uh, yeah. yeah and yeah, I mean there were you, you you could not help and I mean I personally only when I get home did I lose it totally. I mean, some of the staff at BBC, particularly the girls, you know, who were working on Grandstand that day were in tears after the programme. Uh, only when I got home did it all sort of come out. You know, the, the oh dear, I mean, it just, even now, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable that something like that could happen when people who are going fans who support the teams who are the whole point of football really at the very top level mm. you know can be losing their lives going to watch their teams in a semi-final of an FA Cup yeah once I joined um I mean my salary was 5,250 pounds a year I'm not embarrassed to tell you that because it's not too much um <laughs> Because they were basically experimenting. Only Cliff Morgan on the rugby world had been a presenter in, in the rugby side of it. And so it was a real, you know, they were gambling with me. But although I couldn't accept that, I thought I was quite good on the telly. You know, <laughs> so 
you know, you've got to have a bit of an ego. Television and presenting and, and all that stuff is ego. You know, it, ultimately, it is about ego. And, um, and anyway, when I got there very quickly, I said, look, why don't we, for the programs, the football programs, why can't I do an analysis on whoever it might be, Bobby Moore or something, or a goalkeeper or whatever? And, uh, and so I used to go in on a Thursday afternoon into, this, into the depths of the, the BBC, and it took me four hours to put together a two and a half, three minute analysis of a player, a formation, anything to do with football. And so then they suddenly invented this incredible bit of machinery in which there were two huge, huge reels. And I used to wind it through looking through a tiny screen. And I, I used to, on every match of the day, I used to do the, just log it. So naught, kickoff through to five minutes in, dog runs on field, referee, whatever, um, and slowly built it up, as it were. And it was when John Motson came round to see me. He had the chance. He was at the Barnet Press at the time, local uh, news, newspaper reporter. And I lived in Brookman's Park, which is a, only four or five miles from Barnet. And, and Motty arrived in his intense way, because there's never been anybody quite like Motty, I don't think. <laughs> And uh, he used to sit down, Megs used to bring him a cup of tea and everything, and we used to study things. And I used to say, look, do you understand? He, he, he was into the early part of his commentary. So I would start to talk to him, do you know what third man running is, Motti? Do you know what this... So I would be trying to get him to understand football tactics, which he would then just incorporate within his commentaries. And, uh, you know, Motti has become one of the great commentators, Mott, John Motts and Barry Davis. My mentor was David Coleman, who, who was at the time, well, he'll always be a hero because he believed in me. So he was the one, I think, who went to the Beeb and said, you know, give this guy a chance. He could really, he could really ultimately be OK. Yeah. With, you, it, with, with the important word being ultimately. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember the 98 World Cup. That was kind of what, what was I like, 15 or something, 98 World Cup. Uh, I, I remember you kind of anchoring that one. It was good uh, ITV, by that time, of course, I'm at ITV. Mm. So I, I didn't ever want to leave the BBC, but um, I mean, just to say salaries in my day as a footballer, I have nothing, you know, I've got no problem with the guys. They're lucky guys nowadays, both, both football-wise and, for instance, Gary, who's took over more or less from when I left um, and his presentation. But the salaries, you know, it always became a huge once the contract came to an end. And suddenly in the 90, I, in the 98 World Cup, remembering I'd been at the Beeb then, um, well, sorry, from 1974 to 1994. And, um, and so when I got the opportunity to go to ITV, it was really about the money, but above the fact, about the fact and I, I'll bring this out. By this time, my wife was my agent. And I knew enough about the business not to have a professional agent. And, she, and when she went in and they, they agreed to an increase in my salary, which had never been a huge salary. You know, the fact that I used to get up early in the morning was to try and make it a living salary, which is true. You know, I'm not going to give you the exact figures, but believe you me, I had to work hard. And she went in and she came back and she said, um, they've offered you 25 of the match of the days. Now, this is when Des had arrived by this time, Des Lynham. And I said, wow, blimey, 
does Des know? And she said, well, he doesn't know yet because you've got to accept the offer. And I said, no, hang on a minute. What about the World Cup final? What about the FA Cup final? What about the Football League Cup final? If we've got it, if we... So she went back in and very clearly it was going to be Des presenting the finals. And so um, that was the real reason, the real reason in the end that I wanted to sort of go into competition, which for five years was great. I lasted eight years at ITV, but five years was I was in the chair and we had this amazing world record-breaking audience for the Beckham game, a very famous one where he got sent off. And um, yeah, it was, it was the fact that um, I said about egos and, and all that sort of thing, my last two and a half years at ITV were not the happiest because they replaced me with, of all people, Des Lynham. So <laughs> it was, you know, that you have to accept that that's, you know, well, I'm not saying par for the course, but it's it's a fairly brutal business as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Did you actually ever, um, did you ever do any Chesterfield when you were broadcasting? Did you ever do any Chesterfield matches? No, no, no. I was only fuming on the night. And I remember this really well when they deserved to go to the cup final and were cheated out of it. Now, we could have another three days on what I'm saying, because if there'd been VAR then, Chesterfield would have been in the cup final. They played at Manchester United in the cup semi-final and they were cheated out of it. I mean, absolutely shocking refereeing. Well, yeah, we're on the 25th anniversary of the FA Cup semi-final next year. So um, hopefully it'll be a, a chance to... Uh, look back bittersweetly at, at that moment. And, and it'd be really good to go on to talk about Willow Foundation, which is obviously um, the thing that you're most involved with now and, and really important um, as well. Do you want to tell us about, about what you do as, as part of it? Yeah, well, we mentioned Anna, who was there uh, at my This Is Your Life programme uh, right at the very end of her life, just three weeks after that program, which was recorded on November the 2nd, 1998, and Anna died on December 1, 98. And Anna was a nurse, a community nursing sister. She'd been married a year when she suddenly found this cricket ball in the middle of her chest. When I say cricket ball, it, it, it showed itself right in her trachea. And initially it was, oh, you know, it, it's, a, it's a cyst and we will get it out. And only in the operation did they realise that there was something more than just a perfect round cyst? Uh, and it was eventually, she was unlucky enough to be one of only eight, probably eight, ten people in the world at any one time who have what is called a malignant schwannoma. And so it's a cancer that is, it's known to man, but you, you can't do much about it other than keep operating. You know, 15, 16 life-saving ops Anna had during her five years of fighting that. And it was at the end of her life when she said to us, um, mom, dad, you know, use what you've learned. Don't let this thing destroy you. Do not let this thing destroy you. Uh, use what you've learned. And she and, and Max was like, Anna, I'm not sure what we've learned. We've learned that you survive time and again, another life saving off. And um, Anna always had throughout the five years, a diary that was full of her next shopping trip with her mom done maybe dramatically in a, I don't know, in some super cab or something or with her friends. You know, the next, oh, the next Take That concert, she adored Take That. And at times she was, every time Robbie Williams was on, never mind the whole group, 
Anna would be at, you know, on the front row, everything. And she found when she went on those trips, she had almost what you could only describe as an adrenaline rush. It was Anna, all the pain went out the window, all the next ops went out the window. She, she had a quality of life and quality of time. And that became the absolute signal at the end about replicating what had given Anna and she knew, I think, that time was running out for her. In fact, I'm sure she did. But she knew that she could still have, you know, the last concert we went to together with her was a, a Streisand concert, Barbara Streisand at Wembley Arena. And, you know, when she had those, you would never know that she only had a few weeks to live or this is your life night. All the, all the family were there. And then you would never have known that she only had three weeks left of her life. She was... She was loving everybody and chatting about things and saying what a laugh it was when Dad did this and what about this and what about when Johnny Mathis came on from Hollywood and you know it was it was and and it was her orders really we were under orders and Megs particularly went to after Anna died in the month or two after it she went to all local hospices hospitals she went she talked to the medical people and they said look we can operate we can do this. The one thing you've talked about that we cannot do is give quality of life and quality of time. And so that became absolutely our, our strap line, as it were, the Willow Foundation, called Willow because it was my nickname. Anna was Little Willow. So we didn't call it the Anna Carey Foundation. That was her married name. We called it the Willow Foundation. Orders from her husband, Mitchell, to call it Willow. And we did, we, from day one, we gave and we do give special days whatever the recipient and a loved one wants special days for seriously ill young adults in the age group 16 to 40. wonderful children's charities in my age group now amazing hospice mcmillan's and all that in prime time there was nothing nothing in the age group 16 to 40. And it was Anna's special days that we wanted to recreate. And from 18 special days out of a back bedroom in year one that we proudly gave, raising money here, there and everywhere, we are now into our 22nd year um, and have given approaching 18,000 special days. And even in lockdown, when we couldn't obviously do the normal theatre land, meeting celebrities, whatever it might be in this country, because it's never outside the country, we've been able to give what we call positivity packs. So a seriously ill, life-threatened lady in that age group, 16 to 40, would be something on the feminine side, which had been so well received, and obviously on the male side. And if there are kids involved, there are, there are all kids' things involved as well. So amazingly, our wonderful trustees have been able to, and our staff, our Willow staff, have been managing to keep Willow going. Yeah. And that been a challenge and a half I was, was going to say because especially during the last year um yeah I kind of work in the in the arts um sector so we've not been able to do any events and, and we've been closed um but especially for charities as well um not been able to do the people being sponsored for doing running challenges or bake yeah. sales or, or things like that it's been really difficult yeah. to fundraise in the last year hasn't it everybody has been affected and although um we have, you know, we've, we've got our London Football Awards that's about to happen. Um, and so we're doing things virtually. Everything is done by Zoom and virtual events and, and what have you. Um, 
the positive positive impacts have been incredible. Obviously, the fundraising has just gone spiraling down to the point where I think we thought, God, we can't survive. And in fact, our our reserves have gone massively down. They've halved. Um, but we're still going. We're still going. And that's thanks to eight members of our trustees board that keep Willow going. And they are business people in and around London who say, look, it's the only UK charity dealing with this age group 16 to 40. So come on, this is worth fighting for. And we have, Megs and myself, have incredible admiration for our board because we, as I, I mentioned about my, my age group and, and our age group, that um, we are running out of time. And we, we have obviously had to put more and more into um, our staff and the board and, and not us getting home at two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, raising the next whatever amount of money that we try to raise. Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, it's a good opportunity for Chesterfield supporters that, that listen to this to go to willowfoundation.org.uk and, and see how they might be able to help either with fundraising or, or donating and, and hopefully uh, raise a bit of, bit of money for it. Well, that, that would be great. I mean, that Chesterfield... We started with Chesterfield, and I guess we're getting towards the end, uh, aren't we, Dave, really? But um, Chesterfield will always mean so much. The memories of Chesterfield for me are of a childhood of being just such a lucky boy. Um, I mean, the whole of my life I've been a lucky boy. Okay, there's been sadness and tragedy, of course, in everybody's lives, but it's where it all began. It's where I met my wife. It's where... The inspiration for football came, uh, playing on a three-cornered field at the top of Ashgate Road, playing at Saltergate, the Crooked Spire, where I had the nerve to stand one night knowing that Margaret Miles, this girl, was going to come out of the church having gone to the Sunday service and me hiding, waiting to ambush her as she came out to ask her to be, you know, my girlfriend. So, you know... Um, my, my uh, father-in-law's wonderful shop, which was in the marketplace, Stan Miles, news agents, my dad being the borough engineer surveyor, my mum being a JP. Chesterfield, Chesterfield, you know, it's the crooked spire and everything that goes with Chesterfield will, will, will be with me always and mean yeah. so much to me. 